This program is brought to you by the Hawaii Chapter of the Society for Conservation Biology, with assistance from KTUH. SCB Hawaii offers opportunities for direct conservation action through our Education and Outreach, Policy, and Science Communications Committees. To learn more about these opportunities and to join our chapter, please visit www.hiscb.org. Membership is free for students and $10 for professionals. You can also join the SCB Global Organization at www.conbio.org. That's C-O-N-B-I-O.org. Mahalo. So I guess yesterday was Memorial Day. So I have a view of the sandbar here, and there were just... Well, first of all, we took our boat. We were doing a test run on our boat because we were fixing the carburetor. And so we did a test run out to the sandbar early in the morning, and it was, like, pretty empty. And then... We left by like noon and it mm-hmm. was just packed. Just everybody was out there. Sandbars open again, stuff is reopening. But we saw police boats and police on jet skis driving by and kind of coming in and out and trying to question people, I guess, to see like how many people were there. So there's definitely, they're definitely cautious. Yeah, I basically just stayed inside. All of Memorial Day. Yeah, that was a smart. Which is kind of mostly what I've been doing every other That's day. That's smart. It was busy. We tried to like run errands and, you know, the weeks and the weekends sort of blend together right now. So we kind of lost track of yeah. the fact that it was even a holiday and we noticed when we went out. <laughs> Crazy. I, the only reason why I even know what day it is is because I have a, a daily dachshund calendar. Mm. So every day I get to see a new adorable dachshund, and it helps me keep track. It's in, There's incentive for me to go to the next day because I want to see the new oh, dachshund. Oh, that's cute. That's good. We yeah. need those little motivating things. <laughs> if it takes mm-hmm. a cute dog. Yeah, then... motivation has been tough, honestly. Yeah. It's hard because I feel like I have like 12 different projects going on at once, so it's all about prioritizing and making time and acknowledging that some things will take way longer than you think that they will. Yeah. My problem is I only have one project right now. And so I get burnt yeah. out on it really easily. Yeah. And I'm just like, I just can't work on this today. I need to spend an entire day just not thinking about plants. Yeah, I hear but, that. But I mean, that's impossible for me because I go outside and I see my plants and I start like, oh, why is this one wilting? And then I've got this woolly aphid problem that I've been dealing with. So actually, I have um, ants on my lanai that are farming the aphids on my plants. Yeah. And so I'll deal with the aphids on one plant, and then the ants will move them to another plant. And it's very frustrating, but it's also not a bad enough problem that any of my plants are really hurting. In fact, most of them are doing super well right now. Okay, let's um, sync our audio really okay. quick. Okay, so what do we do? 
All right, so let's so count count to three okay. and then clap. Okay. So one, two, two three, three, clap. Wait, that didn't, it didn't work. work. No, we need to clap at the same oh, time. Oh, I thought it was at the same time. Okay, we can try again. All right, well, it might have been at the same time. I just missed it because of Zoom. <laughs> okay, let's try again. Ready? All right. One, one two. Wait. One, two, three. Wait. No, wait. That was so late. It looks the same to me. It looks like the same as you. Really? Yeah. It's like a full two seconds late. On oh, my maybe end. my Zoom is delayed getting to you because it, to me, my claps hit the same time as yours. We can try it one more time. Let me count this okay. time. Let's try it okay. one more time. Honestly, it probably doesn't matter because we'll be syncing it in the audio portion anyways. Right. Yeah, but we could try. Let's do one more time. Okay, ready? Yeah. Okay, you count and I'll follow okay. you. Perfect. Ready? One, two, three. What? Now you are delayed. Well, no, uh, for me, it was exactly at the same time. Weird. Okay, yeah, now I see. That was like two seconds delayed. Maybe not two, but. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think we should just move on. And we'll figure it out okay. when we need to. <laughs> oh, yeah. Good luck with that editing. <laughs> yeah, it'll be fun. Adventures in audio editing. How do, how do we want to start? So, we want to do like our intro or what? I mean, this this is the intro. This is Conservation Talk Story with Max Bendis. Our, and Emily Sesno, our very official and coordinated introduction. Quarantine yeah, that's style. that's all the rage in podcasting these days. It's true. Yeah, everything is quarantine style. That's actually. true. It is true. It seems yeah. that we're, uh, podcasts are very successful when they're not structured. So, you know, we're just following mm -hmm. the trend. But... Yeah, and it's honestly, it's nice to be back. It's been a while since our first episode. Uh, we kind of got kicked out, uh, kicked out, quote unquote, of the studio for a while because of the quarantine. Mm -hmm. But now we're back. We got our satellite studio. And since we can't do the normal interview that we did last time with Ray, we're just going to, you know, talk story for a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got a story. You've got a story. We're going to tell All the each other stories. All the stories. In right. our satellite studio, I like how you use the very official terminology for my uh, computer set up in a phone box on my bank kitchen table with a little yeah. microphone. Yeah, very, very professional setup. I, I at least have, you know, my nice little desk set up for my, you know, workspace, but it's still you know, far from a professional studio. Yeah, I did almost go record in my closet, so we'll see how this turns out. Maybe next time I'll do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I strongly considered recording in my bathroom, but, you know, it just would have been a pain to get set up in there. I would have had to sit on the floor with my computer on the toilet, <laughs> and it's just... I don't know about the I acoustics in a bathroom. I decided that comfort was though. important. More... Well, I mean, yeah, who Might knows? Might be echoey. But I wanted, I wanted to be more comfortable in recording. That's fair. Uh, yeah. I feel that. So who, who wants to go first, you or me? Doesn't matter. Um, should we flip a coin for it or do you want to just go first? Uh, yeah, you know what, let's flip a coin. Okay, you have a coin? If I can find one. <gasps> who carries coins anymore anyway? Especially in quarantine. I have something that can approximate a okay. coin. Do you, do you want heads I or want tails? Heads. 
All right, let's flip. It's tails. Okay. So I guess I'm going to okay, go first. Okay, you're up. Okay. So you might have heard in the news that the giant Asian hornet has moved into the Pacific Northwest. In fact, if you hadn't heard about it, you must have been living under a rock because it got super big on social media and everybody was talking about it for a while. And so learning about the murder hornet kind of got me thinking about invasive species. And when I was thinking about what kind of story do I want to tell on the podcast this time around, you know, it was pretty obvious for me that I wanted to tell the story of how mongooses came to Hawaii. But in order to do that, I got to start with how rats came to Hawaii. So the, the Pacific rat was either purposefully or accidentally introduced to the Hawaiian islands around a thousand years ago. It's, you know, not exactly sure when, but that's kind of when it's suspected. And it's not exactly known whether it was purposefully introduced or accidentally introduced because these rats were a food source for Polynesians in New Zealand, but we don't necessarily have evidence of it being used as a food source here in Hawaii. And in fact, there's a debate as to whether it was a food source or a game animal. So we, there's reports that Polynesian settlers would hunt these rats with little miniature bows and arrows. And it's just the, the idea of these, you know, big, strong Polynesian guys hunting these little rats with these tiny bows and arrows. It just, it's, it really throws me for a loop. It's... <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the basis of comedy, isn't it? You take I, the expectation and you invert it on its head. I feel like I'm picturing, like, little dolls running around with bows and arrows hunting rats, which are, like, the beasts of their time. Yeah, but it's, like, it's not. It's just the bows and arrows that are miniature. That's the part that really gets me. Kind of like a little slingshot, but in the shape of a bow and arrow. Or some, I mean, like, I don't know why the bow and arrow need to be miniature, yeah. Because you could hunt a rat with a regular size one. I think they were just trying to make it harder on themselves. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I want to see a picture it's of that. It's like increasing the difficulty in a video game. Yeah. Well, maybe they just wanted a challenge. Who needs to eat I mean, when you can it learn? Seems like a really, yeah, it seems like a really fun challenge, actually. Not, <laughs> not that I support, you know. Well, let's not get into the hunting debate. For food. For sustenance. Yeah. But... Let's continue talking about rats and mice. So we have the Polynesian rat that was brought here uh, around a thousand years ago. But in, in, in addition to that, there's also um, the house mouse, the Norway rat, and the brown rat that were, bought here, that were brought here after Captain Cook showed up in the late 1700s. So first you had the house mouse, which was introduced by Captain Cook, or supposedly introduced by Captain Cook. Um, or, you know, subsequent Europeans. But then it, it wasn't until the 1870s or so when you started getting the Norway rat and the brown rat and sort of the, the black rat or the ship rat that everybody knows um, really getting entrenched here in Hawaii. And so these, these rats were, one, prolific breeders and very destructive they're, they're seed predators, and so they were kind of just unchecked on the island, just going around eating all sorts of, you know, seeds and eggs and just kind of decimating local plant and bird populations. And the reason why they were able to get so well-established in Hawaii 
is kind of because of the way that they evolved. So to go back to our Ecology 101 course, yes, there's... Yes, I love ecology. There's, uh, there's two different types of sort of... Um, I guess not breeding strategies, but offspring rearing strategies. They're called R selection and K selection. So K selected species are things like elephants and, and humans where we have few offspring and we invest a lot of time and energy in raising them. But that means that those offspring have a very high survival chance. The alternative to that is what's called R selection. And so that's things like rats, and frogs where they have lots and lots of young and they don't necessarily invest a lot into them because the likelihood that they're going to die is very high. I mean, something like less than 1% of all frog eggs actually grow to maturity, which is crazy low, which is kind of why they need to make so many eggs in the first place. And rats have maybe three to four litters each year and each litter can have you know between five and ten ish plus um rats in it and so that's it's a lot of rats and that that strategy evolved because of very intense predation you know there were selective pressures that were killing these young animals and so in order for the species to survive they needed to make a bunch of them but the problem in hawaii is those predators and those selective pressures don't necessarily exist or work the same way and so you have these rats and mice who are making these big litters that are designed to only have a few survive to adulthood when in reality almost all of them are surviving to to adulthood so the population just exploded and there were no predators just way too many rats there were no predators to take care of them very few selective pressures acting on them and so they just devastated local communities it's sort of posited that introduced rats are responsible for losses of um, lowland palm forests kind of throughout hawaii areas like the eva plains used to be this really big sort of lo'ulu palm forest but rodents kind of came in and They not only eat the seeds and flowers, but they actually eat the young plants that sprout out of the ground before they have a chance to get established. And actually, on Rapa Nui, otherwise known as Easter Island, it used to be kind of thought that the deforestation there was a result of the the people cutting the trees down so they could move around the giant stone statues known as Moai. Um, But recently, kind of recently, in 2006... An archaeologist named Terry Hunt posited that the deforestation was actually due to the introduced Polynesian rats that were feeding on the seedlings and prevented the forest regeneration. And that sort of led to the subsequent population collapse on that island as well. So it's really, it's not necessarily people being out of tune with nature. It's kind of nature being out of tune with itself. Mm. Um And there's actually some mm, archaeological evidence, I guess you you could say, uh, from looking at at different types of pollen in the layers of soil. You know, there's evidence that two common plant species earlier on in Hawaii's evolutionary history are now nearly extinct because of these rodents. So lo'ulu ponds, which I mentioned before, uh, they used to be kind of all over the islands. 
And now they mostly only exist as individual palms in remote forests. They're kind of hidden in the noise, so they're able to sneak through and get to maturity. And the only actual Laulu palm forest that is left is on a, a small island, or it's not really an island, it's an islet off the coast of Molokai known as Huelo. Uh, so they're kind of limited to that one rodent-free island. And mm. the other plant is, uh, it used to be common, it's now incredibly rare, it's called Kanaloa. It's, it's basically down to a single wild individual on a rodent-free sea stack off the coast of Kaho'olawe. So this, this plant is so rare, it wasn't even discovered until 1992. Whoa. And it was it was discovered as literally just two individual species, and I guess one, not two individual species, two individuals, mm. and I guess one of them has died by now. But we have evidence in, you know, the soil layers that this pollen from this species kind of used to be all over the place. And, you know, we, we can do a pretty good job of identifying fossilized pollen to species, Um we, we don't necessarily know for sure if it's the exact same species, but we're, there's a lot of evidence that it's the same genus, and this is the only plant in the genus Conaloa. So definitely related and more than likely impacted by rodents. So rats were having a really big impact on the Hawaiian Islands kind of as soon as they moved in. But people didn't really start doing anything about it until it started cutting into their uh profit margins so that makes rats sense. were having that's how humans <laughs> operate <laughs> that's just how the world is unfortunately <laughs> but rats were having a, a really big impact on the sugarcane industry and so they were looking for ways to sort of mitigate that impact and so in, in the late 1800s there were reports that in jamaica sugar growers were using mongooses to control this rat problem. Um, those reports would go on to be unsubstantiated and, you know, turns out it wasn't true, spoiler alert. But no. <laughs> that didn't stop, you know, Big Island sugar planters from importing a bunch of these small Asian mongooses. So in 1883, they brought 72 of these small Asian mongooses over from Jamaica and they started breeding them and then they sort of spread them out across the Hawaiian islands. So it's, there was actually a, a I guess you could call it uh, an editorial uh, published in a 19, uh, not 19, 1888 issue of the Planters Monthly Newspaper. <laughs> an anonymous person wrote in and said- You that would this subscribe is to that. Oh yeah, I totally would. Uh, <laughs> it Honestly, I, I, we'll see if it's still around. I'll need to look that up. That would be cool. But this, this anonymous person wrote in and said, basically, this is a terrible idea. We shouldn't be doing this. We don't actually know if this is going to work. But nobody listened. Classic. And so There's and trends so these, in all of these stories. <laughs> I know, right? It's basically the same story over and over again. If yeah. only we could learn from our mistakes. Nope. Who would have known? Or who would have thunk? But basically, these mongooses got spread kind of throughout the islands, except on Kauai. So there's, there's some debate, actually, as to how this story played out, but both stories have the same ending. So 
kind of doesn't matter which which one is true but basically the two stories go that in the first version the locals were vehemently opposed to the plan so much so that when the mongooses showed up at the harbor they stormed the boats and grabbed the cages and threw them over the sides and into the water oh my and, gosh yeah pretty cruel uh, but all the mongooses drowned the other story which is has the same ending but is a little <laughs> bit funnier is that the person that was actually handling the animals got bitten by them so in a fit of rage he threw them off the dock and into the water oh my gosh either way it's people having a temper tantrum <laughs> yeah basically but the result is that you have very few mongooses on Kauai today. It's, it's very hard to find any. And there are some, I guess, but not nearly in the same numbers that we have on the Big Island and also on Oahu. They're kind of all over the place. But the reason why mongooses, who are rodent predators, weren't able to, you know, er, er, handle the rat population is that they, they don't really overlap in their activity cycles. So rats are nocturnal. They're mm. most active at night. And mongooses are diurnal. They're most active during the day. So these two animals that were introduced to sort of um, control the rat population, they just don't even interact with each other. They're non-overlapping. And so the already you have the impact of a new species coming in and not doing what you want it to do in managing the rat population. But on top of that, mongooses actually have these same impacts that rats do. And while, while they don't necessarily eat seeds and plants, they are voracious predators. And so they have decimated bird populations in the islands. And so- uh, I just don't a, understand a, how these plans get okayed like doesn't anyone oh. do any sort of initial study of these organisms to see that it's not going to actually help so in reality yes normally when you you are doing these biological control introductions there are a set there's a set procedure in place to make sure one that it has an effect and two that you can control it but this was just a bunch of sugar planters saying hey we're gonna do this because right. we don't care about the consequences. And, there, and they, this was, the rats were bad for them. Yeah, and this was in the late 1800s. So I yeah, imagine government oversight in Hawaii was even worse than it is today. Yeah. But these mongooses, they, they were really bad for bird populations. And in fact, a study in the Volcanoes National Park found that 77% of the nene goose eggs that were lost in a three-year span between 1978 and 1981 were due to mongooses. So they actually um, suspect that mongoose introduction is the reason why the nene goose population has been so heavily impacted. Mm. Makes sense. And so I, I kind of touched on this a little bit earlier when I was talking about our selection and case selection, but the evolutionary history of the Hawaiian islands makes them inherently vulnerable to invasive species. It's just kind of how, you know, island biogeographics works. You have these distinct populations that are evolving over thousands of years, 
based on conditions that are separated from pretty much everywhere else. You don't have the same sort of influx of new species and new selective pressures that would sort of instill resilience or more resilience in the species. They, they just never needed to evolve defenses to things like rats and mongooses. And so that's why there were so many ground nesting birds in Hawaii. And when you get this new selective pressure that comes in, these populations just can't possibly respond on a fast enough time frame because evolution doesn't work that way. And yeah. so it's really, it's kind of our responsibility. Yeah. So in, in all of my biology and ecology and whatever classes over the years, we talk a lot about the difference between invasive versus introduced species. Um, right. Can you clarify just so everyone's on the same page, like the, the bare definition of invasive? Yeah, I can actually. So it's, it's really a perspective issue. Mm. So all invasive and introduced species are exotic species is, is a term that I've also heard used. Anything that is brought here uh, by people really is the way that the definition works. If it gets here on its own, then it's, it's not an exotic or an invasive species that got here on its own. It's, it's a naturally occurring event. Where you get the distinction between exotic and introduced or invasive has to do with the perspective of the impact on the environment. So you can have an exotic species that becomes very well established and does very well in an area, but if it's not displacing native species at a you know, larger than sustainable rate or sort of contributing to the extinction of other species, it's not necessarily an invasive. So we have things like, there are lots of Polynesian introduced plants that nobody would consider being invasive species. Breadfruit is a Polynesian introduced plant. It's not native to the islands, but nobody considers it as an invasive species. Kalo is not native to the Hawaiian islands. It's Polynesian introduced, but it's as far away from an invasive species as you can get, it's really where you have this sort of uncontrolled growth. So things like guinea grass, that's an invasive species. It kind of like gets in on, you know, their seeds kind of stick to clothing or they get in because of the, the horticulture or landscape industry, and then they just kind of explode. And we can't necessarily control that population because it's very fast growing and it displaces native species and they just take over whole areas of land. So that's kind of where the distinction comes. And it's And I think of mangroves a lot because just up the road from my house there they have a mangrove the Hia restoration project is doing mangrove mm -hmm. removal, which for me, having lived in Florida and in the Caribbean and other areas where mangrove are essential to healthy coastlines, here they're not providing the same service that this environment needs so they are considered invasive even though they're beneficial yeah. elsewhere no exactly invasive species aren't inherently bad they're just yeah. growing in the wrong place and the impacts that they have are bad so it's yeah. that perspective that creates the difference between an exotic and invasive species mm -hmm. and because hawaii is so vulnerable to invasive species. That's why we have so many that are so harmful here. And that's also why it's so important for us to do whatever we can to limit the influx of invasive species. And so to bring it back to the murder hornets. Not the introducing mongoose or 
Yeah, exactly. But so rats came in on ships. Mongooses were brought here by sugar planters. But murder hornets, they, they have their own means of ingress into Hawaii. And so the most likely way for them to get here is actually through imported Christmas trees. So uh, a professor at UH, Daniel Rubinoff, in the entomology department, he was recently interviewed by, I think it was K-H-O-N, but he sort of uh, stressed the importance of limiting the imports of these Christmas trees. So when Christmas trees get imported to Hawaii, they're, they go through this sort of um, checking procedure where they, they literally shake the tree to see if any like bugs fall out of it. And if no bugs fall out of it, then they chuck it on the truck. And if bugs what? do fall out of it, then they, you know, pick through it and take the bugs out and then they chuck that on the truck. But I have kind of a side note question. Are Christmas trees grown or like pine trees? They can be grown. Aren't some grown on the big island? Oh yeah, you can totally grow pine are trees they, here. Are they native there? Oh no, 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 no. Absolutely. <laughs> so do not. they provide an additional problem when they're grown and are they invasive technically? Maybe not. They're controlled so enough. They're they're not invasive, and it's actually really interesting why. So pine trees are really reliant on mycorrhizal fungi and they associate with what are called ectomycorrhizal fungi so they are mycorrhizae that kind of grow on the outside of the roots versus arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi which grow on the inside of the roots hawaii is full of arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi in fact there are not any native ectomycorrhizal fungi so when they first started bringing pine trees over here, they were noticing that their growth was really bad and they just were sickly and nutrient deficient and they didn't know what was going on. But when they started importing pine trees with soil from their native ecosystems, then they started getting really good growth. And they found that the imported microbiological community was responsible for that increased growth from from the pine trees. And so pine trees by definition, or not by definition, but kind of, they are unable to expand here in Hawaii because they don't have these sort of mycorrhizal associations that they need to really grow well. You do have introduced species like the ironwood tree and the Norway pine, but they aren't necessarily considered invasive, I believe. Certainly not the Norway pine. Maybe ironwoods, I kind of that's, would need to check in on that. That's wild because then you think about the just cascading effects from introducing, okay, the tree and then also its soil and all of the microorganisms within the soil and who knows what can happen. It's everywhere. Oh, yeah. No matter what we do, there's this cascading effect. Just like yeah, the mongoose. It's kind of crazy. No, yeah. it definitely. And wild. so like, Okay, so they shake the trees. Right. And if they, they shake the trees. Yeah. And if they find bugs, they, you know, pick them off. But the, the thing is, only about 10% of the imported trees are actually checked. They kind of, like, effective. check <laughs> They check part of a batch. And then, like, okay, this batch is probably fine. Let's go ahead and put it on the truck and then on the boat and ship it over to Hawaii. And so it's, it it's not, would not be the first time that an invasive species was brought in by Christmas trees. You know, a lot of stuff actually comes in through the horticulture and landscape industry. That's where Ohia, the, the rapid Ohia death um, disease is likely to have come from, from, um, you know, landscaping imports. 
and there's a whole system in place to check these imports for invasive species, but things slip through. And actually, the, the biggest thing that comes to mind for me are the little fire ants. So mm. those have kind of become very widespread, uh, at least on Oahu. Uh, they must be on other islands too. I don't know personally. But those came in in sort of nursery pots. So they were just in the soil of plants that got imported and they didn't get noticed, and then they sort of got established here because there's not a lot of competition. And so they were, they were able to, you know, they are an invasive species because they, one, they're bad for people, their stings really hurt. Two, they, they kill a lot of the native insects that we have. That's just kind of how ants do. They're, they're like li the lions of the insect world. But the, the important thing here is that we need to be mindful of the things that we're importing into the islands, especially things like live plants, which could have insects on them. And also, you know, it's the plants themselves. But kind of the, the thing to do if we really want to protect our islands from murder hornets is to stop buying imported Christmas trees. There's lots and lots of trees that you could use that are already here on the islands. You know, we've got a bunch of Norway pines. And they're, they're not your classic Douglas fir Christmas tree, but they make a really nice Christmas tree. And actually, I would love to see some palm tree Christmas trees. I see them. That's what get, I do. I just decorate I know. some palm trees. And... They look so good. We have so many wonderful native tree species here. Let's light them up. You yeah, know, yeah. Let's show like show our Hawaiian pride by using native species wherever we can. W one, you know, we want to promote the conservation of these species, but two, it helps connect people to the land, understanding you know where these native species come from, how important they are, and having them in our homes, even if it's just for a little while. And mm -hmm. I I'm never the kind of person who advocates for plant murder, so. <laughs> I've, I've always really liked the idea of keeping a, you know, reasonably sized tree in a pot in your backyard and then just bring it inside. That's what I've been season. saying, too. That's exactly what yeah. I say. I'm right there with you. And then you take it out when it's not the Christmas season and you don't have to keep buying a new tree every year. Yeah. So it, it's better for you. It's better for the environment. There's no import. And if you, if you really need that look of your classic Douglas fir Christmas tree, just get a synthetic one. Yeah. They actually look really good. And you can get fake Douglas fir tree smell because that's actually a really big thing for me. I mean, I'm Jewish, but I love Christmas trees. <laughs> and it's, it's the smell that's really important to me. So like, I it's would definitely about the memory doing that spray. It's oh, all yeah. about I mean, like the traditions. I think people going and picking out the tree is really special and then setting it up in the house and having that smell people are kind of stuck on traditions but you can always make new mm -hmm. ones I'm with yeah you exactly that. you know i love traditions actually in judaism our traditions are kind of a, one of the most important things about our culture it's just mm -hmm. if you've ever listened or or seen fiddler on the roof it's literally the first song tradition <laughs> tradition um, but when our traditions are destructive, they need to change. Mm -hmm. It's not an excuse to keep doing destructive things just because it's a tradition. 
And it's, it's not an excuse to continue engaging in toxic behavior just because it's part of your culture. If the culture is toxic, the culture needs to change. And if the traditions are harmful, the traditions need to change. Mm-hmm. And so if, if you're Easier said people, than done. I know, right? And we're, we're sitting yeah. here on our higher courses talking down to everybody like we're better than they are. That's definitely not true. My goodness. Yeah, definitely but, not. <laughs> but I if, still if drive you're, a car. I mean, yeah, I drive a car too. How else am I going to get around? But if, if you're a person who is listening to this and you care about, you know, the safety of native Hawaiian species and about the well-being of our Hawaiian islands and you have a tradition of importing your Christmas tree, try something new this year. See if it works out. You know, yeah. your family might really like having an ohia christmas tree i know i really would yeah that's cool wait so not, i it's not that i live under a rock but i haven't read as much about murder hornets maybe as some others can you tell me a little bit like what what are they doing what's the state right now what's going on to control them so i don't really know what's going on right now to control them uh i know that they showed up in the pacific northwest a few months ago um, I don't know exactly how, because I don't know if it's really known exactly how, but these murder hornets, they're, I mean, they're colloquially known as murder hornets. Yeah, but, but they're they, murdering things, I take it. I mean, they, they actually murder honeybees. Oh. So they're, yeah, right? Sad. Uh, they're so cute, they're, honeybees. They're these big, like really big hornets. They're the largest hornet in the world, I believe. They're like bigger or as big as your thumb and they're they're able to inject roughly seven times more venom in a sting than a traditional honeybee would so they're very painful to get stung by they're very large and aggressive and they're more dangerous to insect populations than they are to people honestly you know they're called murder hornets but you would need to get stung a lot in mass just like with any singing insect in order for it to really murder you unless you're severely allergic in which case you probably already have an EpiPen around with you anyways. <laughs> you're prepared. Yeah exactly you're EpiPaired. EpiPaired. There we go. Ep- That's the prepared. one. It prepared. So it's I it's the cascading effects again I mean we kind of forget how interconnected so many things are because when especially when the bees populations are affected that can affect so many different ecosystems and oh yeah some services for people too yeah and i mean it's there's this you kind of hit the nail on the head there's this illusion of separation you know we think that our islands are separate from other places you know we're safe from murder hornets or we're safe from covid19 but the reality is that the whole world is connected now. And even before then, without people traveling all over the place, systems are connected to each other. You know, there's this conceptual divide between terrestrial ecosystems on Hawaii and marine ecosystems. And that's just inherently untrue. Like, yeah, they're separate in space, but they actually are constantly interacting with each other, especially mm-hmm. terrestrial into marine because of things like erosion and, you know, farmland runoff. Just this, this concept, not only of the separation between different environments, but separation between man and nature, they're just not true. 
everything is connected. You know, man is a part of nature. This, this is actually something that um, Dr. Winters, Kavika Winters, has said numerous times, and it really stuck with me. The, the concept of removing man from nature to save the environment can't work because that's just not how the world is. Man and nature are connected. It's man and nature together creating this sort of new sustainable relationship that we're trying mm-hmm. to you know, promote here in Hawaii and kind of worldwide, honestly. Ideally worldwide, but it's hard mm-hmm. to get everybody on board. Yeah, absolutely. Wild. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, that's that's the mongoose story, which is also there... the rat story, and is also the murder hornet story. And it's also every other intentionally introduced species. I mean, Not every yeah. other, but most of them. They kind of have a story like that that just devolves into, whoops, shouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. It's basically just the same thing over and over and over again. Maybe one of these days we'll learn from our mistakes, but until then, we kind of just got to manage it. Yeah. Wild. Well, so are the murder hornets, like, crazy here right now? No. From the Christmas trees? No, 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 no. They're they're not here yet. Luckily. They're not here yet. Oh, okay. No, no, no. But the, we, the potential is that they would come in from on the Christmas trees. Yeah, exactly. That's where it's suspected that they would come in. That's their, their sort of I best see. line of ingress. Yes, I see. Okay, well, hopefully knowledge is power and that we can stop the, the trend of them coming this way. Yeah, exactly. Cool. All right, Good so job. what's That's your story? Interesting. Oh, well, thank Wild. you. Um, okay, so there were so many like little parallels and connections to my story, but also kind of not. <laughs> so I'm talking <laughs> about coral reefs. Yay! So, yay, coral reefs. Um, and so I don't, I don't specifically study corals right now. I do um, study marine science and climate change specifically related to uh, sea urchins and the marine ecosystem that way. So I'll preface with I'm not a coral reef expert. In fact, I was texting my mm-hmm. friend who I would call a coral reef expert this morning for some input. So I have some go. of her input. But um, yeah, I'll just yeah, say that's okay. that. I'm not can... an invasive species expert. Yeah. As, <laughs> as clearly there, evidenced you know? if you were listening previously. <laughs> um, so I initially uh, thought of this story or heard of, of this story in um, on a coral list serve it's a email chain that's organized by NOAA and basically I think there are 9,000 over 9,000 people that are part of this coral list serve and it's just kind of a conservation conversation amongst all coral scientists researchers students anyone who's interested you can sign up that sounds um, fun yeah, it's pretty cool. They send job announcements. They send new publications, uh, conference announcements, submissions for abstracts, all the things coral reef related. But another thing that I noticed, another trend I noticed on the coral list is a lot of, uh, how do I put it nicely, sort of discussion amongst <laughs> some of the arguing. same voices. <laughs> a lot of arguing, a lot of feels sort of not productive debates that go on amongst the scientists. Um, one example is the sunscreen ban, which I think many people in Hawaii are familiar with, that mm-hmm. some of the chemicals found in sunscreen were found to be harmful to coral reefs, and so they banned it, but 
on Coral Listserv, there was an ongoing discussion of whether that was worth it or whether that was beneficial because then people think, oh, if I don't wear my sunscreen, I'm helping coral reefs, but I won't do anything else because I'm already doing my part. And so, you know, some people think that it's a distraction from the real problem and a band-aid. Well, what, what is the real problem then? <laughs> Climate change as yeah. a whole is the big thing. And that's what that a sense. lot of these scientists keep coming back to is we can't just focus on these local stressors. And this actually has to do with my story today too. You can't focus on the local stressors without addressing the bigger issue of global climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just interesting to see the conversations back and forth, some productive, some not so productive, sometimes not so nice, <laughs> which always surprises me uh, that go on. And actually on the coral sunscreen one, there was an article published in the Washington Post specifically about the debate that scientists were having about sunscre- the sunscreen ban from the coral list. So it was kind of interesting to watch the thread and the emails go back and forth about this sunscreen ban and then to see an article published in Washington Post about how the scientists couldn't agree about the ban. Yeah, so that's cool. It's kind of interesting. You're getting but, to watch so, it unfold in real time. Yeah, exactly. And then read about it in the media. And that's also, I'm sure you're familiar too, there's an interesting relationship and it's very, very relevant and necessary in conservation uh, conversations at all is uh, how scientists and the media and or general public and non-scientists, how they interact and how scientists communicate their story. I mean, that's why we started this podcast, right? Is to sort of put the word out there of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's often a disconnect and a lot of people will blame the media and then blame the scientists who spoke to the media. Like a lot of scientists, there are even classes on how scientists can talk to the media. Oh yeah. It's actually a really really important thing for scientists to be able to do because our our work is often being misconstrued and oversimplified. And then what happens is you have media misrepresenting the work and that gets super popular. And then, Mm you know, they, they issue a retraction saying, oh, sorry, we got this wrong, but very few people see that retraction. So then you've got these two different camps that are arguing back and forth about what's true and what's not. And that's part of why we now have, we've gone from the information age almost immediately into the disinformation age. Yep, exactly. And that a few months or even years at this point, I don't remember last year, there was an article that came out that was titled the obituary of the Great Barrier Reef. Did you see that? It got, a, it got a lot of hype, and I had a lot of people sending it to me. Did you see that the whole Great Barrier Reef is dead? Mm-hmm. I was like, not exactly the full story. Um, so that's like one big take-home from this story is to, if anyone's listening, just like not buying Christmas trees, is to also try and investigate a little bit more fully than just reading one article because there's a lot of... A lot of uh, countering ideas or studies and a lot of science comes with more question marks than answers but media likes to portray it as specifically concrete hard science so it's good to sort of be critical so the story is about closing the loop on coral uh, reproduction so what that means is being able to complete the life cycle of a coral reef entirely in the lab and that's really difficult but really important for studying coral reefs so to back up a little bit Coral reefs are animals. They're cnidarians related to jellies and anemones. Um, 
cnidarian literally translates to stinging cells. So they have stinging cells. Um, and they are hugely important ecosystems all over the world and coastal regions, mostly the sort of tropical, the shallow water coral reefs are what we think of when we think of a coral reef. Um, so they provide a lot of things for humans, um, coastline protection, food, economy, both tourism and all, so many different things, but they are at, they're in trouble right now for yeah. all of the problems that we're introducing. So kind of what we were talking about earlier, there's um, sort of global climate change and also local stressors. And that's where the conversation of uh, a lot of these coral scientists are like, no, we, it's not enough to do this local tactic. We have to address global climate change. And then other people are saying, well, we need to do both. So one thing that the Florida Aquarium is trying to do is close that loop in the reproductive cycle to be able to restore and then transplant and keep reef populations from thriving or mm -hmm. continue them thriving, not keep them from thriving, but prevent them from declining, I guess. So um, an article came out in April, so last month, uh, and the title was Florida Aquarium Becomes First in the World to Reproduce Rigid Cactus Coral in Human Care. So corals have a couple of reproductive strategies. They can reproduce sexually by spawning mm -hmm. um, and brooding or asexually by just sort of budding off of each other and dividing and creating these colonies. So if oh, you're not yeah. familiar, just like plants. Uh, yeah, exactly. So coral, it's an animal. It's a tiny little animal. And a coral reef is a colony of a lot of thousands, I don't know exact numbers, but lots of individual animals that creates the reef. So the budding is nice because they can, they don't need anything else to just like continue to grow. Um, but the sexual reproduction where they're actually having egg and sperm from different individuals introduces that genetic diversity, which yeah. allows them to sort of grow and adapt to changing environments and hopefully become more resilient and able to adapt to changing conditions. So yeah. one thing that a lot of researchers are trying to do is develop super corals or corals that are able to survive in the changing environment. Um, so the biggest issues we have with climate change are global warming and ocean acidification. I, sh I guess I should be careful to say biggest because, you know, somebody is going to disagree. But some very big challenges that are facing reefs are warming and acidification. And warming in particular causes a stress to the coral that will eventually lead them to die. So the idea is that now we can get, if we can grow them in a lab and pick for the genes that are more resilient and able to survive these changes, then we can put them back out in the ocean and then they can continue to grow and we can sort of protect the reefs from their decline. Um, but they're very, they're notoriously difficult to complete that life cycle in the lab. They're very finicky. They're very slow growing, so it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of human power, it takes a lot of attention, it takes a lot of equipment, and so it's been sort of difficult to make that happen. Um, so here in Hawaii, um, we have a lot of work that's going on at the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology, where my lab is, 
that's looking at trying to find sort of super coral species that can survive these changing conditions. Um, and I was talking to my friend who studies corals and I asked her what she knew about the research going on here in terms of trying to close that loop, being able to raise a coral, get it to spawn, get its little babies to settle, to then grow into new corals and then do it again. And she said um, she got a, some babies of this one species to live a little under two years old. She said, I raised them in tanks in the lab. Then last year, the warm summer temperatures caused them to bleach and die. She said, I isolated them during the full moon to see if they were releasing larvae, but I didn't document any larval release during that time. Not sure whether they were sexually mature or just not at the age. So basically well, she had two years. Two years does sound a little young, to be honest. <laughs> Maybe in human speak, but not in corals. But yeah. I mean, she was raising them for two years and then just one warm uh, sort of warm spell killed them. And we. Yeah, that's a bummer. Yeah, we're really lucky. Especially. Yeah. So, oh, so I just have this. When you talk about these baby coral polyps, I'm just imagining like little coral puppies sort of like yeah. sitting around with with big eyes and being super cute but like <laughs> i mean i know that's not actually true but i'm internalizing my love for puppies with these yeah. baby coral and then the idea of them just all dying i mean it makes me really sad yeah well it goes back to you waking up each day to see your cute little uh, puppy calendar and <laughs> change oh, yeah. the day but yeah, they well they are invertebrates, so they don't have eyes. They don't have spine and nervous system that in makes the same sense. way. So, but they do. There are some pretty cute. You can see they just sort of look like little rice, like little grains of rice that kind of swim through the water. So they're pretty small. Huh. Um, but I guess you could draw a little face on them. You yeah. Know, like, in 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 Photoshop or or something like that. Yeah, yeah, you could. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really hard though. So she spent two years trying to raise them and then all of that for nothing. And that's just one person. And we are lucky at our lab that we have a situation where we can pump seawater directly in from our bay. So it's mm -hmm. tracking natural conditions. It has all of the necessary nutrients. We don't have to manipulate the water at all to try and make it an ideal place for the coral to spawn. And coral seems are really hard to do. Yeah. So in other labs, like especially in the middle of various countries where they don't have access to the ocean water, they have to create ocean water conditions. And so you can imagine how much more difficult it is to get them to kind of go through their whole life cycle in these manipulated treatments. It's very, very hard. Yeah, um, it sounds daunting. To yeah. Say the least. And Exactly. So, I mean, corals are, they're super slow growing too. So it takes a lot of time. So let's see, like, for example, there's, um, the fastest corals might grow six inches in a year, but others will grow less than an inch per year. So they're pretty slow. Um, yeah, which, that's really slow. Yeah. So you got to have a lot of person power to maintain. Um, and so let's see, I'm trying to think of some scrolling my document. So I was asking her uh, specifically about 
um, I guess I should give her credit too. Her name's Arianna Huffmeyer. So she just uh, defended her PhD in January. Oh, good for her. So she's Dr. Huffmeyer, and she nice. specifically coral studies corals under uh, thermal stresses, so temperature stress, so when it gets too warm. And she was working on trying to get them to spawn. She said that uh, doing things, I asked her what the hardest thing was about raising these corals and trying to complete that life cycle, and she said time. She said, doing things to boost their growth, like feeding them and having sufficient water flow, appropriate light, et cetera, might shorten the time needed to grow. But we, don't, we still don't really have a good understanding of whether it's age or size that triggers them to start reproducing. Time and resources like tanks are often limited and human power to do things like clean them and make sure they're happy. <laughs> yeah. And she said a lot of them will die early in the life stages too. So you have a ton of larvae um, and only a few juveniles. Sounds so like case selection. Exactly. I was thinking about that when oh, you were nope. describing it. Sorry, that's R selection. I think it's R. I got it wrong. I think it's R, yeah. Yeah. Because they reproduce a lot in the beginning. Um, and on top of this, corals will only spawn at a certain time of year. So they whether it's the cycle of the moon or seasonal temperature, temperature changes or light patterns, nutritional input, like all of these things make it exceedingly difficult to spawn them. Mm -hmm. So I, I think basically what I'm saying is if we can figure out how to have a juvenile coral in the tank spawn, have and uh, a larvae that survives to settle on the bottom to then grow into a juvenile to then spawn and then you know continuing that cycle in captivity we might have more control of uh, sort of reforesting I guess <laughs> recoral yeah, reefing certain areas re-reefing um, yeah re-reefing yeah exactly and so the Florida is doing a lot of work on uh, coral reef restoration. They're connecting with the dive industry to have restoration projects where instead of just having dive tourism where divers come and kick all the reef, they actually come and volunteer their time and help replant. And some scientists uh, say uh, this is a waste of time if the coral is going to die anyway. It's not a waste of time to engage people in restoration efforts. It's, exactly. it's always worth instilling in people their connection to the natural world and how important it is. Exactly. Exactly. So um, this is, yeah, this is a hot topic, but uh, kind of going back to the email. So basically on this coral listserv, one person emailed the list and said, and sent that article, just the article. It's sort of like, here's some information. And mm -hmm. the next response was, do you consider appropriate the opening statement of this article? As in, is it okay to say that the Florida Aquarium has made a breakthrough that will help save America's Great Barrier Reef, the third largest coral reef in the world? So that's I mean, the that's first line in the article. that's a blanket statement. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the first little statement in the article is that this project of being able to close that life cycle, outplant these corals, will help save America's Great Barrier Reef, which is off of um, the Florida Keys in Florida. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then the conversation proceeded. So I, I went through my email list and kind of compiled all of the continuing conversation from this one thread. And it's 16 more pages of back and forth. Wow. Of, of scientists kind of debating that, including the scientist that was interviewed for that media, popular media article, which was in CNN, which, you know, is often considered reputable. Um, and yeah. she even commented on it kind of, um, let's see, I have her email. So some people are sort of talking about the science and then so then the, the scientist who works at the aquarium commented and was talking about how they're able to do this. She talks specifically about the science and, um, but doesn't quite comment on the, um, blanket the statement. That, yeah. Uh, and then someone, uh, it all went on to talk about the hyperbole that exists in media, um, yeah. And then this person said, hyperbole are what media do best. It happens every day. Here in the UK, a chief medical scientist said with lots of caveats that some of the lockdown measures could continue for up to six months. Headlines in the paper the next day, UK will be in lockdown for six months. Uh-huh. That sounds right. <laughs> yeah. So, and I'm always, I... I'm always interested in the way sort of media portrays this and the way scientists handle that. Um, being related to a journalist myself, this is a, a conversation that happens kind of often in my, in my family. That makes sense, um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, it's just interesting. I'm kind of scrolling through the email chain, just a lot of people sort of pointing fingers and saying... How are we to have any chance of developing the political will in support of a realistic strategy for dealing with coral reef crisis if we keep providing optimism in a form of good news instead of science-based realistic picture of what is going on? Um, yeah, and they all, it's just kind of interesting. And I'm always baffled every time a new email comes in and someone's sort of not bashing the science, but sometimes not the nicest to the people doing the science. Yeah, right? We're people too. We're not just scientists. Exactly. So, and I think that, you know, in our efforts to talk about conservation on this podcast, but also beyond, is a, a bigger understanding of how people get their information and um, just sort of how the story is communicated and that this is a good example of some really interesting science about trying to close the loop in that reproductive science, a reproductive cycle so that we can do something to protect coral reefs. And then other mm -hmm. people are saying, oh, but that's a waste of time because if you're just going to outplant out coral that are just going to die because the ecosystem isn't fitting, then it's a waste of your time. Which is valid, but that's not exactly what's happening. <laughs> yeah. I love how we are just able to find all sorts of reasons to argue with each other. Even when we all have the same goals in mind, it's, oh, you're not doing it well enough, or you're wasting your energy, or you're not, like, you're not doing what I would do, so then you must be wrong to be doing what you're doing. Exactly. Yeah, people are very silly. My um, God, aren't they? Yeah. That's kind of my, my story of conservation is, is also 
is talking about the coral itself and their reproductive life cycle and being able to uh, do it all in the lab in a controlled environment and also the conversation that happens outside of that and how that is heard by the general public or whoever is going to make decisions to make it happen. They're all interconnected. It's complex. The science itself is very complex and very difficult. Yeah, it's hard enough when, one, we have to distill these very complex scientific ideas into easier to understand sort of bits of information. But then when you add in the extra layers of how that information is communicated, it just gets so convoluted and messed up. And it's understandable that there'd be this debate among coral scientists. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. there, you can you can spend your whole career as a scientist working on the science of how science is communicated. Oh, yeah. Or, I mean, it's, a, know, whole, it, it's a whole nother field for sure. Yeah. You could argue that it's more of a social science than a hard science, but still, it's a science. Yeah. One of the uh, one of the emails was talking about how uh, they read a list of top new animal species discovered in 2019, and the number one uh, species was a wrasse that was named after a, a place in a Marvel comic. And that oh. also sort of sparked a lot of debate where some generally older generation scientists were saying that's not real science if you're using a you know a comic name and then others are saying hey but it works it gets the attention and it's fun and science is fun yeah i think there's a lot of room for names of species that aren't just named after the old dudes that discovered them there are so many plants that have species names that are just some old guy's last name and it's it's really frustrating and it's 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 kind of like what you were talking about with people's egos get in the way of the actual science that they're doing yeah like who cares what somebody wants to name something yeah just the important thing is that people know it exists yeah exactly and i mean thinking about the reasons that either of us got into science i think at its heart it's that we love it and it's fascinating yeah. and fun and it's i think we gotta do everything we can to keep that in it and especially Mm -hmm. in times like these when everything we're studying is about how things are dying and how can we protect it and how do we move forward in a new environment where conditions are different yeah that's the really big question is how do we create a better relationship with the natural world yeah because i mean Currently, our relationship is quite broken. Yeah. I think we really need some couples counseling. I think so. Human beings and Mother Nature. (laughs) Couples counseling. Or I guess that's family counseling then? Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Either way, hopefully they can do it online. Yeah, I know. Because we need to stay socially distanced. Yep, we got to keep our distance. For the time being, at least. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's all I have in my story. I mean, there's obviously, like, tons of details of the science behind coral reproduction and the social science, maybe, behind human egos. (laughs) Right. We should probably just have a whole episode on that then. Maybe we can have your, your doctor friend on to interview. 
Actually, I talked to her about that when I was messaging her about this. I was like, maybe we can do a follow-up where we interview you and you can give us more details. And she said she'd be happy to. So, yeah, she's I would very, love yeah. to learn more about coral and coral reef systems. I, I was lucky enough to do a little bit of work with corals when I was in college, just doing, you know, species surveys in Belize. Mm-hmm. But I'm far from an expert on coral reefs. And man, the more that I learn about them, the more I realize I don't know about them. Yeah. That's... Yeah, there's a lot. And it, it makes it difficult when you're sort of, you know, in thinking about how how much detail to include in this story, because this one's kind of layered with the yeah. human <laughs> human aspect. There's a lot because, you know, when I'm teaching younger students in particular, actually anybody, but because I've worked with younger students about corals, the first question generally asked is, do you know, is a coral an animal, a plant, or a mineral? So if I were to ask you that question, what would you say? Just to put well, you on the spot. You already explained that coral are animals. Yes. Yeah, that's true. So you have the uh, insider knowledge. But it's, right. it's, kind of, uh, it's kind of all of them. So coral itself is an animal, but mm-hmm. it also secretes or builds a hard skeleton, some, most species, some species. So it's literally it, limestone. Yep, yep. So it's also a mineral and, or a rock, I guess. And it's also a plant because within its soft tissues, it has uh, an algae that lives, that coexists with it, lives inside the tentacle tissues and provides right. food. So, so one thing that I didn't go into specifically, but mentioned coral bleaching, coral bleaching happens when conditions get too warm or unfavorable, sometimes it's other stressors, and the algae itself either isn't surviving or isn't providing what the coral needs. So essentially the coral expels that, spits it out and says, you know, maybe to make space for something that can provide what the coral Mm -hmm. needs. And that's often what um, the algae itself, which photosynthesizes, getting the energy from the sun, provides sort of a color pigment to the coral. Not always, some corals have their own pigment, but often. So when the coral spits that algae out, the what you're seeing that white color that you see which we refer to as coral bleaching is sort of through the tissue and the sort of seeing that skeletal structure underneath and then the coral isn't necessarily dead right away but it's not getting a bulk of the nutrients that it used to get from the algae so if nothing comes back and takes its place then it will die and then you have these mass bleaching events that often can lead to mass die-offs Sometimes they recover, and that's Sometimes. that's a big question in this sort of uh, studying and restoration is, okay, why is this one surviving and not that one? But if that one did, let's, let's put that one out there and see if it can, you know, recover the population. So, and that's just one issue, coral bleaching, that they face. There's a lot of other things going on. Yeah, seriously. It's hard enough for a coral as is. Yeah exactly yeah so that would be cool we could get a dr ariana to come chat with us about corals yeah i would love that hopefully when it comes time for us to record our next episode we'll actually be able to do it in studio yeah that would be good instead of our our home studio our satellite studios as you called them yeah (laughs) if if we're lucky we'll only have to do this once 
And yes. if you're lucky, listener, you'll only have to listen to it once. <laughs> Hopefully the audio is decent enough. I mean, we'll find out. That's true. All right. Well, cool. thanks for joining us, everybody. Yeah. Um, in case you, you liked what you heard or you didn't like what you heard and you want to yell at us, you can get in touch with us uh, at our email address, conservationtalkstory at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on Twitter at contact story and please go ahead and check out the hawaii society for conservation biology at www.hiscb.org you know um they're technically our sponsors although we don't get any money for this <laughs> we just get encouragement words of encouragement yes and also be sure to listen on ktuh and all of their uh associated platforms any, any final words, Emily? Uh, I don't have anything. I guess maybe uh, we were talking earlier about plants. Well, your whole story was about plants, but I'm looking at my plants in my house, and they're making me happy. My one yeah. my good thing that's making me happy in this moment is all the new plants. We've been restocking our house with plants. It's nice to have That's green. great. Yeah. I'm happy to hear that, especially as a plant person. Yeah. Um, I would say my good thing it actually is again related to dachshunds so yeah. my parents are not definitely but almost definitely getting a new puppy so we've, <gasps> Cute. we've we've got a line on a miniature dachshund and hopefully my parents will be able to get them they're adorable they're the in the litter the the their eyes recently opened and they're just so Aww. darn cute. I cannot handle it. I'm going to be so happy to have a dog in my life again. Cute. And even, even better that it's a dachshund. Yeah. A lot of people are getting puppies right now. It's amazing. Oh, my God. Yeah. They're getting the, homes. The shelters have been completely emptied out, which is great. Yeah. That is good. Amazing. Well, enjoy the puppy. Will you get to see it? Probably not because they're not here, right? I, I mean, yeah, I, I'll probably be able to get back to California, best case scenario, in August. We'll mm -hmm. see. I mean, I'll be able to talk to the puppy through Skype or That's true. Or you got to train it young. people are using. Yeah. <laughs> train it young to recognize your voice. I mean, I'm just going to be calling my parents every single day just so I can see the dog. Yeah. Um, on my audio, you're probably going to hear an airplane right now, so you... You're gonna have to cut that minute out of my audio there, Max. Okay, fine. Air airplane I'm, just flew overhead. I'm gonna be cutting out some construction noise on my end too, so there's gonna be <laughs> lots of cutting happening. Perfect. Great. I guess we should say thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in, and hopefully we'll have a new episode in a studio in the future. Yeah, we'll see you next time. Or I guess you'll hear us next time, and we'll just imagine that you exist. <laughs> oh, there's another airplane going overhead. Fun. Goodbye! Goodbye. That worked. Yeah, kind of. <laughs>